The mother and son are seeing extinction in La Syndicalista, and Indiana Jones's Dial of Destiny is allowing us to say hello to the bookstore. I'm Van Connor. And I'm Adam Ball, and this is Off Screen, your seven-day guide to everything movies. Boom. Hello and welcome back to the show then. We have got five brand new movies to talk about this time round. So Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny in a moment. First though, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what you thought about that one, Van. Um, But we're going to start with Hello Bookstore. So this has got basically something to do with, from what I can find online, the pandemic and a small bookstore that the town rallies around to try and save. In, indeed. So, right, this this is, like I say, you, you've pretty much got the nail on the head there. So, small town bookstore run by the sort of, ta- it's a family owned thing, the Tannenbaum family, run by the sort of elder patriarch and sort of older hippie type. And you, you know what kind of guy you're dealing with because he has a, you know, uh, Bernie for president sticker on his back window. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> kind of tells you, kind of tells you the exact guy we're talking about. There's a Bernie for press sticker behind him throughout most of the movie. And it is about sort of his, his journey through the pandemic, how his business has to adapt and function through the pandemic, a period during which obviously he can't allow customers in to browse, but he can sell them sort of like on, on the curb. He can do curbside service. Um, but of course, this then leads to, you know, more financial hardship for an already struggling industry. Obviously, bookstores have been kind of plummeting in sales over the last decade or so anyway, in sort of the post-Amazon era factor in the pandemic as well this then starts to take a toll on this very you know this mom and pop business and he's forced to to turn to desperate measures such as the tried and tested route of go fund me you know the swan song anthem of the pandemic era in order to try and save his business have a listen this is this is from the from from the trailer for hello bookstore I was just fresh out of the United States Navy and looking for a direction in my life. I met a guy and he turned me on to Henry Miller, Kerouac, Fred Exley. That's what happened. I fell in love with writing. I bought the bookstore 10 days before I turned 30 and I've had it ever since. Look at the smile on that guy's face. He found a book. See, I know this kind of thing actually, you know, it did happen everywhere during the pandemic. Was, um, yeah. you know, on my radio show during the pandemic, I had numerous bookstores that would come on mm. and talk to me about the fact that they were not allowed people in the shops. So and what they were doing is riding their bicycles to deliver books to people that wanted to buy them so that they could keep their business going. So is this quite... I guess, is this quite an emotional look at, you know, what actually the pandemic did to to things like bookstores? On the one hand, yes, it is. Like on, on the one hand, yes, it is, but it's, it, this is through the macro, the microcosm of you know Matthew Tannenbaum's very specific prism. Like this, this is this is a bookstore that's very singular to this man's identity. He is on screen for ninety nine percent of this documentary. It's literally following him. I think it's uh, the, the director of this is uh, it's uh, A B Dax, who this is, and this is like a first time uh, feature effort. Like you very much get the impression this is sort of a local film school kid, you know, it's like some local regular of the store kind of thing. He's like a local filmmaker kid, and, and it's like, hey, this would be a good documentary. It has that feel about it. And it's not said in a derogatory way. I think it's a perfectly you know well enough made version of what it is. However. 
what it is does not come without flaws. Um, again, as opposed to, you know, Tenenbaum himself, who's a very likable enough character. He's a kook. You know, he's an absolute kook. He's an old hippie in a cardigan. Like I say, Bernie for press. Window sticker behind him. You know the guy. You know the exact guy. You can hear from the clip exactly who this guy is. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Totally. yeah you, you've, you've met this guy. You know what I mean? And he's a lovely dude and everything. And I'm sure if you, you went to his store, you, you'd have a ball with him. Um, I, I mean, the problem is it's a very boilerplate story. As you've just touched on yourself, you, you've had a million of these stories on your radio show. Like, this yeah. is not... A, I don't think this is a new story. I think we've all encountered this. I don't think this is as revelatory a story as anyone thinks it is. And putting... And there's not really a need to put a human face on it because there always is a human face on it. Because if there isn't a human face, it's usually because it's a corporate entity and they don't need the support. You know, you know what I mean? Like... Subway's not going out of business. The independent sandwich shop is. And if this independent sandwich shop is promoting, obviously there's a face to that to that campaign because it's an independent. You know what I mean? So it's kind of a fundamentally flawed idea. And then you have then you have the practical logistics of this. And Tenenbaum himself kind of doesn't do himself any favors because and this is one of those real world kind of plays a part in this where you just be like I- i'm sorry my dude no you've you, you, this is this is your failing here there is a moment in it that really sums up the inherent flaw of the movie in which we see him several times you know with customers knocking on the the glass front door of the shop and he says no you can't come in to browse i'm sorry no uh, i can serve you curbside though if you know what you want and if you don't know what you want you can go on the website and there's pictures of the books that's what it says. There's pictures of the books, and then someone, <laughs> yeah, and someone asks. You know how they always say you can't judge a book by its cover. Apparently, he thinks you can. Um, he also, someone then asks him. In fact, a couple of people ask him, um, "Can I buy them on the website? Can I pay for them on the website?" He says, "No, we don't offer that." You're thinking, "Yeah, dude, but you know, Amazon does allow you to do that, and like Squarespace is a thing. You know, like there are a billion plugins you could." put in your website with very little effort that would have allowed you to I know you're an old guy but come on man and then it gets to the stage where the business is failing and he's turning to go fund me and you start thinking oh so you can use online facilities when it suits you but not when your business literally depends on it like not not, not to prop the business up but when you need to survive and it's a very infuriating contradiction like, I know that this is a real-world criticism that should have nothing to do with the movie. I'm, I'm doing the exact opposite of when I didn't hold Ezra Miller to account for The Flash. But, yeah, I, I, I really struggled with that because it's asking you to put sympathy in something that was so easily fixable. Well, I was going to say, what do, you think, what do you think they were trying to do with this movie? I know that the, the attempt is there to try and build, this is an uplifting story, because obviously he was the only bookstore in the town, and go, he, they do the GoFundMe, and it makes all the money, and it supports the store, etc. Again, very rushed, kind of slapped on the end, and you start there thinking, I mean, this is obviously, this is not an action thriller, so it hardly counts as spoilers, but you just think, this isn't really much of an underdog story. This, unless the underdog story is really most about, mostly about just how nice the dog is. You know what I mean? It's it's. It sounds it's like, to me uh, like this was planned during the pandemic when they thought, 
this would be an amazing story. Like to, coming towards the end of it, you know, thinking this would be an amazing story. Let's get it out there. There's this that's happened and that's uh, without actually realizing that, like you said, hmm. every independent bookstore was going through the same thing. This is the thing. I don't want to rag on it too hard because I know it comes from a good place. And Tannenbaum himself comes across as a very likable, clearly well-meaning person. And again, it it it, it feels it's like it's like kicking a swan. You know what I mean? It just feels wrong. And but at the same time, the the swan is kind of an a hole. You know, to 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 sum it up. You know. <laughs> so you know have what to I mean? Kick it anyway. So you kind of have to kick it. But, yeah, so it's called Hello Bookstore, which incidentally is in reference to the way he answers the phone, because it's called The Bookstore. Like, hello, bookstore. That's how he answers the phone. And, I, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I watched it, I, I had a lot of flashbacks to my time in Michigan. Like, it did it did take me back to a lot of, like, because it kind of looks like mainstream in Kalamazoo. So I did have that feeling, well, this kind of takes me back to that, that very small-town Americana feeling. Yeah, that, that, yeah. Or, that almost Smallville feeling that you get in sort of a way on a lot of the, the mall streets, as they're called in, in small town America. And I, I had that feeling, and it it was a nice, nostalgic, quaint Smallville kind of a feeling. But that in and of itself does not a good film make. I mean, to be honest with you, I wouldn't really recommend this to anyone. I thought The Booksellers was a better documentary about the ins and outs of book retailing. Which, believe it or not, now believe it or not, now seems to qualify as a subgenre. But okay, yeah. And somehow we've managed to waffle on about a bookstore for ten minutes. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to watch it, Hello Bookstore is in cinemas from today. We're going to be back in just a minute. We're going to talk about the new Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. We'll see what Van thought of that one in just a sec. Stay there. Hello and welcome back to the show then. Uh, loads of more movies to talk about that are new um, and we'll get Van's take on them very soon. But the moment we've been waiting for, he's back! Yes, yeah. of course, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Um, before you mention and talk about how, what you thought of this movie, um, mm. I read the synopsis which made me chuckle slightly. Go on. Um, where it says, archaeologist Indiana Jones races against time to retrieve a legendary artifact that can change the course of history. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the same plot to every Indiana Jones movie? Yeah, but have you ever seen, have you ever like gone through the uh, the EPG on like Sky Plus or whatever and like found an episode of Star Trek and it always describes it as the Enterprise crew arrives at an alien planet. You're like, <laughs> That's literally every goddamn episode of Trek, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they've done that with this, but I mean, that just doesn't necessarily point what kind of a movie it's going to be like. But you know, right. I just thought it, it did make me chuckle. Well, the good news is I can I can provide you with more context. Obviously, I got to see this what about ten days, two weeks ago, now something like that. Right. So, it is 1969 is, is the present day for this one. I think we were in the early 50s for uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is the last one. Uh, prior to that, we were still in World War II with The Last Crusade. So one with Sean Connery, World War II. One with Shia LaBeouf, uh, 50s, communist era, uh, McCarthy witch hunts. Now, we literally open the present day of this on Moon Day. So July 21st, 1969, a.k.a. Moon Day. Right. Prior to that, however, you get a 20-minute epilogue to this movie using state-of-the-art CG de-aging technology in which 
uh, Harrison Ford has been made to look 35 to 40 years old again. And we get to see exactly where Indy was when World War II came to an end. And it is one of the most breathtaking sequences to any movie, let alone an opening to a movie, I've seen in a long, long time. It also introduces Toby Jones and Matt Nicholson. Uh, the pair of them as characters to the Indiana Jones mythos. You've got Toby Jones as yet another academic friend of Indy's, you know, who's got like an obsessive quest that Indy's, you know, in on and his one style of Archimedes. And you've got Mads Mikkelsen, who's a Nazi scientist. So... We introduced them all at the end of World War II. We then jump ahead to the present day. It's Moon Day. It's the late 60s. Indies, you know, now the aged college professor living in the same Brooklyn apartment we saw him in in uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Only now, the girls aren't quite drawing, you know, I love you on their eyelids anymore and batting them at him in class. No, now he's the old man. They don't care about what the old man has to say. He's an old man. He's not sexy young Harrison Ford anymore. However, one young lady in his class does have eyes for him, although not in the way that he's used to. Said young lady is Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who happens to be Helena, his goddaughter, who hasn't seen in decades, the daughter of Toby Jones's character, who comes to him and says, Dad had this, my, my late father had this quest, much like yours did with the Holy Grail. Follow that one. You know, my dad had this quest, as you well know, the Dial of Archimedes, which was split in half. I think we've got half. Can we go and find the other? And he says, oh, before he can say yes or no, however, Mads Mickelson turns up, having been Operation Paperclipped into the US government. You know that thing after World War II? The, gov- the US government had what was called Operation Paperclip, where they took all the former Nazi scientists and they basically gave them pardons in exchange for services to the aerospace industry. Oh, okay. So- Effectively, this is how you wound up with the space race. So the US side of the space race was mostly powered by the science of former Nazis. And if, if you don't know that, welcome to the entire plot of the first season of For All Mankind, also history. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen is one of these scientists. Um, however, he's not quite as innocent in all of this as you would think. And wouldn't you know it, before you can say the words Hail Hydra, it turns out he's a baddie and he's been doing all of this so that he can get his hands on the other half, as well as the first half, of the Dial of Archimedes. So the race is on between Indy and the Nazis to pursue and fulfill not his dad's quest this time, but his goddaughter's dad's quest. So we're basically doing Last Crusade in reverse before the Nazis can beat them to it. Have a listen. This is a clip from them when they're in a cave in which Archimedes has laid one of his you know, elaborate sort of puzzles out for them. Life lies at her feet. Water displacement. Get in the pool! What? Help me open the door! Well, they didn't get out the doors. Get in the pool! Hey, you're getting in the pool. Help me! Archimedes was fascinated by water displacement! Well, I'm straight away thinking that needs yeah. to be an IMAX movie. 
It is. I mean, I saw it in IMAX, it's worth noting. And oh my God, I loved this. Now, I was so burned in 2008 by Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. There was there was no movie in 2008 that... I mean, without even thinking about the trailers, I, I didn't need to. I didn't even really pay attention to the marketing or the trailers. I was just, who cares? Indies back. You know what I mean? And, you you, you know, we're age comparable. That, that's one of those things. It's, it's kind of like we grew up with indie. Yeah. Indie, Hell indie yeah. is cinema. Like, that's... Yeah. Sorry, but water's wet, the sky is blue. Indiana Jones is cinema. That is, that's like gravity. That is science. And nothing, but there's very few films have burned me harder than, than Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And there is a moment about two minutes into this when you're, you're in the de-aging prologue, which, by the way, brilliant visual effects. I mean, there's a bit of Uncanny Valley when there's not a direct light shone on him and his, his eyes sort of glow in the dark, weirdly. A bit of Uncanny Valley there. But otherwise, the best like use of this I've seen. Light years ahead of, like... Peter Cushing and Carrie Fisher in Rogue One, for instance. And but there's a moment, like a couple of minutes in, where you're just like, oh my god, like I I remember what this feels like now. I'd, I'd actually forgotten what this felt like. And and I and I I was literally in my mouse transported back to being nine years old. I was transported to the scene Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time. I was I went back to like the minecart chase in Temple of Doom. I went back to Disneyland being on the Indiana Jones, you know, minecart roller coaster. I remember oh, yeah. I felt like when I saw The Last Crusade for the first time and I laughed my ass off at Sean Connery, you know, Junior, you know, and and and, and Venice and and it, it, it hits those notes. It hits them wonderfully. It's not got Spielberg in there. and But having supplanted Spielberg this time around for James Mangold, who's, you know, the guy that mostly makes westerns, maybe through other guys, like Logan is kind of a western, but it's still a western. It, it, it doesn't quite have the Spielberg sparkle, but it's really close to it. And it's a lot closer than Spielberg himself managed with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Like I say, when you're in that opening, you get transported back. And I'm sorry, but if you don't, then you've lost that magic. And that's not about the movie. I think that's about you. I think that's you having aged out of it. If you've still got that youthful joy, there's not a single cell of your being that's going to sit through the opening of this movie. And I'm not talking about the rest yet. I'm just talking about the opening. There's not a single fiber of your being that sits through the opening of this movie with a CG de-age Harrison Ford punching out Nazis and saying, I hate Nazis. You know, there's not a part of you that's just not, oh my God, Indy's back, yes. And I hadn't even considered it before I was sat there watching it. And I felt actually quite bad because I, I took a date to see this. And I, and, and you know, obviously I'm in a cinema, so I'm not exactly paying attention in, in, you know, to anything other than what's on screen. But I was just like, no, no, nobody else in this room exists in this moment. There is only me and Indiana Jones. And I bloody loved it. I loved every second of this. Everything, I lo it's, it's just a great, fun, old school thrill ride of a movie. It is every bit the theme park ride that Indiana Jones always was. It's that balance. It's slapstick and spectacle. It's the two things that made Indiana Jones Indiana Jones. Yes, he's cool. He's got the swagger, but occasionally trips over his own toe and accidentally headbutts a guy. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's indie being indie. You remember the, the, the classic bit where, you know, the guy takes out the sword and does the, the fancy yeah. swivel bit and he just takes out the gun and shoots him? That guy is back. 
oh, I, he's 81, but he's back. And we didn't well, have that. We didn't have that. That's what I was going to say. Let's talk about Harrison Ford quickly before we finish this one. Because mm. obviously, he's, he's quite a bit older from the last one. Has he still got it? He has still got it. Believe Good. me, he's still got Obviously, he's not called on to do as many, like, big swinging stunts. I mean, technically speaking, I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is. And by the way, she's just... She is doing, like, quote-unquote, just flea bag, but without the fourth wall. However, by this being shifted forward to 1969, it's now contemporary enough that that's fine. It's not like, uh, uh, what do you call him, Shia LaBeouf in the last one, where it was really just like, ugh, God, this is a bit weird and like old hat, a bit homage. Because, but, you know, it, and it just didn't work. Phoebe Waller-Bridge works a lot better. The supporting cast work a lot better. I love Mance as a villain. Boyd Holbrook's a bit wasted as chief henchman. But, you know, Antonio Banderas, I quite liked him as well. We get a new short round who, and I'm going to say, this is one of those moments that just hit me in the feels. The new short round is a little Arab kid. And I was a short round Arab kid, so I have a special appreciation <laughs> for the idea that the new short round is a little Arab kid. Yes, please. And yeah, I, I loved it. I really, And do you know what? It, it's just got broad cross-generational appeal. This is one, you, you can take Albert to this. Like, you genuinely could. It's not got too much in the way of, like, darkness to it. The ending is a bit on the nose with how far-fetched it wants to go, even within the confines of the indie series. But then again, you know, first one, Ark of the Covenant, all of Temple of Doom, third one, Night of the Templar, guarding the Cup of Christ. Aliens wasn't really that much of a stretch for the fourth one, if we're being honest, and what they do with the final 15 minutes of this is not as far-fetched as you would think in concert. It feels it in the moment, but actually when you come away on balance, you're like, actually, that works. And they didn't make it quite as Doctor Who cliche paradoxical as they could have, or as much as I thought they would have. I thought this was a damn good five-star blockbuster ride. I will see this again. I will watch this a dozen times before I ever watch Crystal Skull again. Incidentally, if you're wondering, yes, they do explain the Shia LaBeouf of it all. He does not appear in the film. They do give you a reason why. It is right. a valid, justifiable, and almost cheerworthy reason why, if we're being honest. And it does actually build to genuine, heartfelt, emotional catharsis with a couple of returning players and there are a couple of old faces from indie who do appear in there uh one of them who did appear in two of these movies actually that doesn't narrow it down because a couple of players appeared in two of these <laughs> um I, I mean one of them really hits me in the feels it's an actor that i've met a few times and i i think it's just a wonderful dude and he he turns up in this in fact you've seen if you've seen the trailer you know that john Rhys davis is in it what am i on about you know that John Reesdale Sala is in this because he's in all the all the marketing, and every moment that he's in it is just beautiful. I absolutely loved seeing him again, and it's nice to see where they would do. I thought this was great. It is a definitive ending. It does give you an ending for Indiana Jones. Like there is no setup for, and now it's Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and now it's Chris Pratt playing young Indy. There's none of that nonsense. It's it's just look. This is the end of the Indiana Jones story. That's it. For better or worse, this is where the story ends. This is where the fedora gets put on the coat hook. And do you know what? Like I can say, I got taken back to being nine years old. And I was just like tears streaming from face, whooping, cheering, clapping, just 
honestly laughing laughing myself senseless. And best of all, I got the second date out of it. So a great movie. I had an absolute ball win, with it. win, 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 win <laughs> all the way around. Uh, see, see this movie. Take your grandparents. Take your parents. Take your kids if you've got them. Honestly, see Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, and experience joy. That's all I can say. Just well, experience who joy. Doesn't who doesn't want to be taken back to being nine years old again? I mean, that's just <laughs> everybody. Do you know what I mean? Those those lovely exactly. memories. And like you say, you know, it's the it's just what it, young being a young child in movies was all about. Indiana Jones, straight there, boom. It's like, so in, it, indie is cinema. That that yeah. is cinema. Indie is cinema. It's like Star Wars, just is cinema. Yeah, totally get it. Well, I mean, it's in cinemas uh, from... Well, it's been in cinema from Wednesday. Um, Two days, so you yeah. can actually go and see it from now, over the weekend, whenever you fancy it. Um, right, we're back soon. We're going to talk about Mother and Son and My Extinction, two movies that Van has seen already, and we'll see what he thought about the next. Stay there. Hello and welcome back. Right, two more new movies to talk about, both out from today in the cinema. Mother and Son in a moment. First, we're going to talk about My Extinction. Um, I- I've got a slight issue with this, Van, in the fact that <laughs> I went online to do my research, which mm. I do every week before we record this. Mm-hmm. No synopsis for this movie, My Extinction, at all. I saw some comment about someone saying it's about climate change, which kind of works with the title, but that's it. That's all I could find. Right, so what you've got with this one is this is like a, a you know low-budget British-made documentary. I think relatively self-made as well. It's um, made by uh, in fact, it's made by Anne Starring, sort of low-budget filmmaker Josh. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to look it as I read it. I'm sorry, I can't pronounce his surname. Apignanesi, as I think is an Italian name originally. Apignanesi. Who's you know low budget filmmaker? His filmmaking project falls apart at the start of the movie. So why he's just casually documenting this, I, I don't quite know. It's almost like it's rigged. Um, and the uh, and the first act of this does feel specifically like he's restaged it. If I'm being honest, his filmmaking project falls apart, and he starts to get into environmentalism. He realizes that he should care more about the environment than he does. And he starts looking into why he doesn't care about the environment. So much so that he actually joins Extinction Rebellion and becomes an on-the-ground foot soldier for the Extinction Rebellion movement, using his filmmaking prowess to document it as he goes. Which, And obviously, because he's a filmmaker, this gives him access to every vaguely known name that happens to attach itself to the movement as he starts to explore why the average man on the street doesn't care about climate change. Have a listen, and this will somewhat go with that. This kind of fits the thesis of the movie. There are 63% of this country is working class. It's more important to get them on board than it is the middle class and the upper class, because there's more of them. We only have to get, you know, 2 to 5% of them. Whole things change, whole yeah. ball games change. And how do you do that? Your air quality where you live yeah. is... They're putting incinerators incinerators in your area, things that affect them right now. Stop talking about what's going to happen in the future. That's an emergency. I've got to ask, how old is he? Because he sounds about 12 in that clip. (laughs) 
<laughs> he's not that old. I mean, he has like a wife and young children. He's quite oh, okay. in his like early forties, I would say, at a guess, right? And there's a there's a veritable who's who of names that turn up in this: Simon Burley from Mission Impossible, Julia Stevenson, Jay, uh, Zadie Smith, uh, George Mon- George Monbiot, George Monbiot obviously turns up because climate change is involved. So of course, John George Monbiot turns up. Of course, he didn't have a Guardian headline due that day, so of course he turned up. And right. This is exactly as nauseatingly preachy as you would bloody well think it is. I don't know how (laughs) you personally feel about environmental activism. I I, I tend to fall on the side of um, the Venn diagram between environmental activists and people I don't want to have a conversation in a pub with is a straight circle. If I'm honest, it's just an overlapping straight circle. I find that most environmental activists in practice slash reality also happen to be completely insufferable and the kind of people you wouldn't urinate on if they were on fire. This movie does nothing to dissuade me of that position. And I I don't say this because my ex-fiance was a devout environmentalist or that I actively despise most of the ones I meet. This just hammers home the point that they're all insufferable. This is just one of the most insistent, trying, headache-inducing works of self-promotion I've ever seen. This gets to a stage where Josh Appenine, or whatever we're calling him, gets to the third act of this and gets to actually make a speech at one of these rallies or conferences and just gets on stage and tries to be self-deprecating. You start thinking, no, really, you just come across as a bit of a tosser, if I'm honest. I've not got got much more context I can give you than that, pal. You just come across as someone who I'd kick off the queue to board the bus, if I'm honest. I just, I'd, I'd kick you off the queue to a crowded bus in the rain, and I'd do it merrily. It doesn't make any grand points that haven't been made six ways from Sunday in better thought out, articulated arguments. I mean, I'm aware that, you know, most people obviously, I'm aware that don't listen to like the James O'Brien show every goddamn day like I do. So, you know, I'm aware that there are people for whom Tufton Street is a relatively unheard of concept and things like that. But this is the kind of information that you get peddled to you as if it's like Snowden level whistleblowing territory. And you're like, nah, nah, bro, no, I don't think you realize that this is not exactly the grand conspiracy theory you think it is. Like, this is not, this is not conspiracy theory, turf. This is guy down the pub who's listened to a podcast turf you know what i mean like i found it headache inducing i found it dull i found it wince inducing i found it nauseating i I just found it not saccharine but the other way around i just bitter just oh i hated it honestly i just hated every second of it thankfully it doesn't last that long i think it lasts about an hour and 20 minutes it's an 80 minute long i, I thought it was 26 it was 20 an hour and 26 minutes no it's an hour and 20 minutes um the six minutes longer i thought it was was because i felt it lasted nine hours and uh, yeah i hated it 
hated every second. I never want to see anybody involved in this ever again, and that includes George Monbiot, a man for whom I had all the time in the world, if I'm honest, before this. But by putting his name to this, I now think infinitely less of him. But, yeah, no, please, no, don't ever watch this. Don't do it. <laughs> Just listen to literally any episode of the James O'Brien. Like, any day. Listen to any day's worth of the James O'Brien show. And you will learn more about environmentalism and climate change activism in five minutes than you will in this entire bleep show of a so-called documentary, which basically just forms a vanity project. I say that as a man whose name makes up the first three letters, literally a vanity project. So, no. No. No, kick this one to the curb from the bus queue in the rain. No, F this. No. Well, if you want to make up your own mind... Q van knew that was coming. Oh. It's in cinemas <laughs> from today. No. My extinction. Oh. <laughs> right. Do you know, John Mosby, when we reviewed Transformers Age of Extinction, John Mosby, my great friend, who a film critic who left to become an English teacher in the US, married an American. He's the one where it worked out. Um, famously said, you can't spell extinction without stink. And do you know what? I'm going to say that about this. You can't spell my extinction without stink. Well, it is in cinemas from today, just in case you do want to go no. see it. Next, let's talk about Mother and Son. Um, now, this is set in the late 80s, isn't it? Well, actually, it's a generational story. So it starts in the late 80s and sort of carries through to the present day. Uh, in, in French, it's, it's called uh, Un Petit Frère, which is My Little Brother. And uh, I kind of feel like it's a better title, in a sense. Like, uh, Mother and Son, I don't know, either one works, to be fair. Like I say, it's a generational story. Initially starts by focusing on the mother. And she is an African immigrant from the Ivory Coast who emigrates to Paris. Becomes a you know an, an immigrant to Paris. Has two young sons. And we follow the journey of this family across a couple of decades as we go from the mother struggling to you know make ends meet as a hotel cleaner. And you know, we, and and the young sons acclimatizing to this, their lifestyle, etc. We jump forward in time as well, and we then get to know the sons primarily as teenagers, one older and one sort of younger, one one teenager, one tweenager, I would say, and and their hopes and dreams and how that factors into a life with a mother who, you know, is just trying to make ends meet. You know, she's, she's not really been afforded the privilege of being able to give them all the opportunities. It's just a case of she's just been ticking the boxes. She's just mm. been paying the bills. She's just been getting a boyfriend. She's just, you know, I mean, like, it, it, it's, it's, it's the box ticking requirements as far as she sees of being a mother. And in that regard, it's, it's quite a sympathetic story in that regard. Now, it's SA. I, I, I watched this literally before we came on. I watched this. And uh, I was quite captivated by this. I was like, this is, it's a bit over long. It's an hour just shy of two hours. I think it's about an hour 55. Hang on, I'm going to check this. An hour 56. Well, I, was, I was off by one minute. I mean, come on, that's not bad. <laughs> um, hour Good guess. 56. Hour 56, this one. I'm sure my screen is at hour 57, actually, now I think about it. Uh, but the performances in it are tight. The, the, the filmmaking on this white is tight. It's, it's quite a gritty, grounded, palpable drama. The, I mean, the thing is, though, I think outside of being compelled by the drama of the performances, I don't think the story is that investable. I don't think the story is really necessarily... Do you know how you, you in particular, have an issue with subtitle films? What I call the cleavage effect. Yeah, yeah. You, you just, know what I mean? You know, hard to con concentrate on it, yeah. 
Yeah, you, you know what I mean when I say the cleavage effect. Like you are looking down at the bottom of the screen for the entire time when you're watching it, kind of thing, and it kind of ruins it for you in a sense. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to coin that. Actually, I'm just going to call it the cleavage effect forever. Uh, of which the raid is immune, by the way. Please watch the bloody raid. Come on, it's been like six years. <laughs> watch, watch the raid. It I will happen. Watched, I know you've watched like five minutes of it, but come on, it's been like six years. Watch the raid. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, the cleavage effect notwithstanding. Um, but yeah, the thing is, outside of that, I don't think the story outside of the character performances and the character art is really that investable. This is not something that's going to put bums on seats, and I can kind of understand why. Having said that, performances, direction of it, really tight. I liked it. I can see both sides of it, however. And it's one of those where it's like, I can see why you wouldn't. It's, it's kind of, it's a bow is afraid again, kind of thing. Well, I, I liked it. I can see why you wouldn't, to be fair. Okay, well, if you want to go and see it, that is also out in cinemas from today, Mother and Son. Okay, uh, it's the final movie in a moment. You're going to have to say its name, Van, because I've heard you try and say it many times and not get it right. I'm not even going to attempt it. La Syndicalista. La Syndicalista, sir. I've got it, baby. La Syndicalista. Baby. Right, we'll talk about it next. Hello and welcome back to our final ride. We are going to talk about La Syndicalista. Uh, there we go. Ooh. I said it. Smooth. Oh, <laughs> Anyone would think that I talk for a living. So, um, what do you think of it, Van? Explain what it's about. Again, this is another one I couldn't find a synopsis for. You know why you couldn't find a synopsis for it? I'm, I'm really going to ruin your day now. Right. So, I, I, I had this on, on the FDA release schedule as a Syndicalista. It's uh, the link was sent to me as La Syndicalista. If you go on IMDb, it is in fact listed as the sitting duck, sir. Whoa! What? What yeah. on earth? Why? That is what its title evidently translates to. Right now, I described this to my good friend Calvin earlier today, and uh, oh my god, this broke him as a person when I told him the story. I'm not going to tell you the end of this story like I did him because it gets harrowing. So this is this is based on true events that took place in 2012. And in reality, it was about an Irish uh, woman named Maureen Kearney, who had married a French nuclear uh, worker, moved to France, and had become a union a, a union rep for the nuclear industry, uh, and had then become a whistleblower when she discovered that French nuclear secrets were actually being sold to Chinese companies, like under the table, and in exposing uh, this, you know, the, this scandal. She was threatened. She, she received like threatening phone calls, visits to her home, things like that. And one night, there was a break-in at her home. Her housekeeper would arrive the following morning and find her strapped to a chair in her basement, having been sexually assaulted, having been you know assaulted full stop, but also sexually assaulted as well. She was then gaslit and told by the police that she had made this up and she was browbeat to the point that she was forced to admit falsely that this had been the case wow. but there was more to the story than that that's all i will say now for the purposes of the film the irish element of maureen kearney even though she is still named maureen kearney weirdly enough uh, the irish bit has been dropped she's simply french and she's played by isabel huppert 
And uh, anybody who knows me and, and my particular proclivities for films uh, knows that I love me some Isabel Huppert, son. Oh my God, Isabel Huppert is the French Glenn Close. She is Le Glenn Close in my books. She is badass. Pour all the Isabel Huppert you can in me, son. I'm here for that. But this comes with an actually really convenient and brilliant element that kind of contributes to the film, which is that Isabel Huppert has a certain level of frostiness to her. And with this frostiness, what they get to do is they play a bit of a prank on, on the audience. So even though the true story's out there, you can look this up and you can find out what happened. For the purposes of the film, that alleged sexual assault becomes, quote, that alleged sexual assault. We are not shown anything. We simply have, she went to bed that night, housekeeper came in, how does it go? And the film does play it as, this is the mystery. And Isabel Huppert being Isabel Huppert can be as sympathetic as she likes, but she naturally just builds that suspense because she, like I say, she's a very walled-off actress. Like, you you love Isabel Huppert almost in spite of how walled-off she is, or because of, dependent. Like, something, if you watch something like Greta, the, the thriller Greta with uh, Chloe Moretz, which I absolutely love as a movie, Neil Jordan movie that I absolutely adore, um, her frostiness and that walled-off nature is why that movie works. But that's what's powering this. Now, I did not know the true story to this. Now, the true story to this, like I say, this took place in 2012. The movie also largely takes place in 2012. But there is a time jump element in this as well, where it jumps forward to 2019. Jumps forward seven years, and a lot of the story then, like basically the third act, takes place in 2019. I did not know this story. And I can only assure you, no spoilers, I don't want to ruin any suspense, I can only assure you, you're, you're going to feel really awful that you didn't know this story. Like, it's, this is this is a proper dyed-in-the-wool old-school thriller. Like, I bemoan the lack of mid-budget for the adult thrillers in 2023. But you've got an English-language adaptation of this that would answer that in a heartbeat. Like, this is, this is powerful, pulse-pounding stuff. Like, I bloody love this. Like this is this is the kind of thing. Like in order to do this, like you say, if you do this in English, it would have to be Sharon. It had to be uh, Glenn Close. What's that? Sharon Stone there. It'd have to be Glenn Close. Like you'd it's only uh, you you'd need someone who could just like get. But Kate Blanchett. That's who you'd get. That's who you'd get for the English language version. You get Kate Blanchett. She's the only person I can think of actually outside of Glenn Close. You'd get Kate Blanchett, and it'd be an absolutely fantastic movie. And every movie from then on would cost $40 million and we'd live in a better universe. Like, pour this in me. Give me 50 of these. I want them. This is a hell of a movie. I, I, I say, I didn't know what it was. I just started it up and I was bemoaning it. I really was. I was like telling friends, oh, I'm going to watch some French movie. Then. I'm looking forward to it. You know. Literally, lay, lay down on my couch in the, I'm going to have a nap position. Did I nap? Did I hell? No. This was great. I absolutely love this was a solid five star, like I say, pulse pounding, powerful thriller. I love this. La Syndicalista, check this out. It's in Cinema Store. It's been distributed by Picture House from today. You've got to see this. It's just so goddamn good. 
It sounds harrowing, and actually, from oh, yeah. the way you've described it, it sounds like one of those movies, and they don't come along very often for me, mm. but it sounds like one of those movies that once you've seen it, as you're walking out the cinema... You can be telling friends. You're still thinking about it, and you're messaging people, you're telling friends about how amazing it was. Yeah. That's how this it is sounds. One. Yeah. This is one you're going to go to work. You, see, you might accidentally see this over the weekend, you're going to work on Monday, and you're just like, yeah, I saw this movie, it was incredible. Like, I forget what it was called, some French thing. I, that It's one of those. Like, you're going to be talking about this. Like, I do think... This is one of those that you could see, like, being put up for Best International. It won't, like, get properly get nominated or even definitely won't win. But you could see this getting put forward for Best International Feature and, oh, my God, it deserves it. Such a good movie. Would it work as well for you if it wasn't based on a true story? Oh, no. It would still be a great story if it wasn't a true story. Like, okay. definitely. I mean, to be fair, the Isabel Huppert of it all really sells it. Like, Isabel Huppert isn't mentioned <laughs> anything anyway. The Isabel Huppert of this all actually works for me. There is just something about Isabel Huppert. Like, it's, it's not like it's not like I fancy the actress or anything. Like, it's just like, you you are just this amazing, singular, wonderful actress. And, the, and I can only compare her to... So like, she is basically halfway between Glenn Close and Meryl Streep. Like I, she is the French halfway mark between those two, and you you see that here. Definitely. Well, you can go and see it yourself because it's in cinemas from today. Uh, La Syndicalista. Did I say it right? Yes, you did. You jammed yes. it. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. So before we go, let's talk about the ones we're going to be chatting about next week. So um, the damned don't cry. Yeah, let's go through the two that no one's heard of. So the damn don't cries out next week. Along <laughs> with smoking causes coughing. A French, I believe that's a French comedy as well. Uh, however, the three I think we will be talking about next week are we have a new Pixar movie. Now that is always a reason to celebrate. And if you want an even further reason to celebrate, the requisite Pixar short film that appears before this is a sequel to the movie Up. So, ah, Doug, brilliant. Uh, uh, what's his name? Carl. Carl from, from oh, Carl's First Date is uh, is the short film before Elemental, which is best described as what if Zootopia with the five elements. So, you know, earth, water, wind, fire, yeah, et cetera. But yeah. Four elements. You can, tell, you can tell I was a 90s Captain Planet fan, can't you? The five elements. <laughs> yeah. like, I was gonna, like I was gonna add heart as if that was a bloody element. You just she is Captain, Yeah, she is <laughs> Captain Planet. Yeah. <laughs> Earth, water, wind, fire. Yeah. So Elemental is finally out next week. I got to see this a few weeks ago. I saw this with Zara. We did the Sunday morning. Father's Day, we did this, actually. We went uh, Father's Day morning, she and I, and saw this in Leicester Square. So one of the only times I can remember seeing Zara cry at a movie. Like, wow. You've, you've, you've met Zara. She's a yeah. hard ass. Mm. Like, you know, there's, there's no one made a sterner stuff than Zara. I watched them tears flow. She didn't admit it afterwards, but I watched them flow. Um, Elemental, which is just, you know, there's so much to say about Elemental. We have the latest Insidious movie, The Red Door, next week as well, which I believe is also the directorial debut of its star, Patrick Wilson. And last, but certainly, certainly, by no means least, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, baby. It's yes. next week. Tom Cruise, this time, is going to drive a motorbike off a cliff. He's going to drive a train off a cliff. He's going to do a lot of things involving cliffs. Because he's Tom Cruise and he has Xenu on his side, of course he is. 
Well, we will be talking about all of those next week. I can't wait to hear about Mission Impossible, especially. Uh, so, yes, we will return next week. Until then, I've been Adam Ball. I've been Van Collar. And we shall return.